How sweet, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The hymn Amazing Grace is the most famous, most popular, most widely played hymn of all time. It was written in 1773, but not set to its current melody till 1835. But 245 years after its debut, and this hymn still holds a grip on public consciousness like no other song. There are over 7,000 recordings of either instrumental or vocal versions of this hymn, earliest dating back to 1922. Many popular artists have performed covers of this hymn, including Aretha Franklin, Johnny Cash, Ray Charles, U2, and even Elvis. No other song is as strongly associated with Christianity or with God like Amazing Grace. Question. How could such a beautiful song of faith come from the wretched mind and heart of a slave trader? I'm going to come back to that question. This weekend, we continue our series, Alive in Christ, a journey through the book of Colossians. And after two chapters, we come to this pivot point in the book. The first chapter, Paul established the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus is God. He created all things. He is preeminent. And through the gospel, he reconciled all things to the Father. And because of that, because of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ, in chapter 2, Paul warns the reader to stay away from any practice that would add anything to faith in Christ. So Paul warned against syncretism, legalism, asceticism, mysticism, right? Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, nothing else. And so after these warnings, we come to this pivot point where Paul provides direct instructions on how to live gospel-transformed lives. And we do that by putting away the old self and putting on the new self. Out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old and in with the new. So let's dig into Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in our ESV Bibles on page 984 or on your Bible apps. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here. There's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. He is all. Paul begins this section with the word if. right? And it's an important conditional. If is signaling to us to whom Paul is directing the verses that follow. If. If then you have been raised with Christ. Paul is directing the rest of the book of Colossians to followers of Jesus. To those who identify with the death and resurrection of Christ. 
Paul essentially says, if you believe in the preeminence of Christ, then this is how you ought to behave. This is what the behavior of followers of Jesus ought to be. So I want to pause on this phrase, if you've been raised with Christ, because it's important. To be raised with Christ implies that one has, in fact, died. Right? A resurrection implies a previous death. So what does that mean, given that this passage is being directed to readers who are very much alive and not dead? And the answer is that that phrase does not refer to physical death. It refers to death to sin. It refers to the death of our pre-Jesus lives. It refers to the death of our old selves, right? Out with the old. Because followers of Jesus have been transformed. Followers of Jesus have been transformed. Throughout the Bible, we get this clear contrast between our former state prior to faith in Christ and our new state after faith in Christ. For example, the Bible uses the comparison between old and new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Bible uses the comparison between darkness and light. For one time, you were darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. And here in Colossians 3, Paul uses the comparison of death and life. Verse 1 implies a death before we can be raised. Verse 3 is even more direct. For you have died. Earlier in Colossians 2, Paul wrote this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. We are alive in Christ. Amen. Amen. Old, new, dark, light, dead, alive. Because of the gospel, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we're transformed people. You know, there are many videos online of churches doing something called cardboard testimonies. And in these videos, churches have members hold up a sign that, that says something about their former life on one side of the cardboard, and they flip it over to show what their gospel-transformed life looks like. They're great videos, and they're great visual reminders that the testimony of every single Christian is this before and after transformation. You and I, we're not the same. We once were lost, but now we're found. We're blind, but now we see. We're transformed. And because we are transformed people, followers of Jesus seek a heavenly perspective rather than an earthly one. We seek a heavenly perspective rather than an earthly one. Verses 1 through 2 again say, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Transformed people seek transformed perspectives. Right? Transformed people seek transformed perspectives. Paul uses two phrases here. Seek the things that are above and set your mind on things that are above. Now they're similar, but they're different. The Greek word used for seek is usually translated as seek or to look for or to search. In 1 Corinthians 14, that same word is, be, is translated as to strive for. And together, these different aspects of that word give us a sense of what Paul is trying to say here. Paul is trying to say that we ought to really push for. We ought to search with all our might. We should look deeply and pursue a heavenly perspective. We are to pursue a heavenly perspective. And the phrase set your mind on now, we, we, we use that phrase, set your mind on. We, it, this is different than how we normally use that phrase. 
We use the phrase set your mind on to mean focus. Right? You set your mind on a goal means to focus on that goal. And in the context of this verse, to focus actually makes sense, right? We do want to focus on heavenly things. But to be truer to that word that's being used here, set your mind on actually means to be of the same mind. To be of the same mind. It means to agree with. It means to be fully aligned on. The Bible is saying more than that we should just focus on heavenly things. The Bible is saying we ought to be in sync with heavenly things. Listen, you and I far too often, we read the Bible in such a way as to make it agree with what we already believe. But instead, these verses are telling us we need to adjust our minds, adjust our worldview so that they are in complete alignment with what God is saying. We have to agree with what God wants us to believe rather than what we already believe or what the culture tells us to believe. The Bible says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So, at this point, I think two questions naturally arise. Right? Paul has declared, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you need to think differently. And so when I read this, I think to myself, well, why and what? Why ought we to seek a heavenly perspective and what would that look like? What does that look like? And I think verses 3 through 10 answer these two questions. So first, Paul gives us the why. Why ought we to set our minds on things that are above? And verses 3 through 4 say, For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul answers the why with this important point about our spiritual walk. That's this. Followers of Jesus are being sanctified. Followers of Jesus are being sanctified. Sanctification is one of those words that Christians hear or read about, but what does it mean? And as a doctrinal topic, sanctification deserves its own sermon or sermon series, uh, but I'll give you a high-level view of it today. There are three phases of the Christian experience with sin. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is being saved from the penalty of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty for our sin against a holy God is eternal death and separation from Him. But the moment that someone gives his or her life over to Jesus... When we identify with the death of Jesus for our sin, then the penalty of sin is taken care of. Christ's, Christ's atoning death for sin on the cross is the substitution for death that we owe God. The Bible says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we're justified. Justification happens immediately upon our faith in Christ. And... And it's assured forever and ever. When we accept Christ as Savior, our eternal destination is safe permanently. This is what Paul is referring to in verse 3. He says, we've died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. One commentary I read said the word that's used for hidden there refers to hiding treasure. So the word hidden is implying something held safely. What this means is that our eternity with God is secure because of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. 
and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Our eternity is safe in the hands of Christ. That's justification. Glorification is the third phase and refers to the permanent eternal removal from the presence of sin. We are saved from the presence of sin. One day our physical bodies will go away and we'll receive glorified bodies. And our glorified bodies will not contain the sin natures that our physical bodies currently contain. The glorified bodies will be perfect. Our flesh will no longer be working against us and attempting us to sin in disobedience. The Bible says, so, it, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. And more than that, more than just glorified bodies, the world and the people around us will also be perfect and without sin. We will be permanently removed from the presence of sin and instead be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying in, in verse 4, right? When Christ appears, either at his second coming or when we appear before him at our death, when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. We will be glorified. The Bible says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, glorified. So justification happens immediately when we follow Jesus. And glorification happens at the end of our lives. It's this middle phase between justification and glorification that the Christian daily deals with. And that is sanctification. Where justification saves us from the penalty of sin, glorification saves us from the presence of sin, sanctification saves us from the power of sin. From the power of sin. By the way, I know that some of you are pretty bothered I went out of order there. <laughs> sanctification is the process by which Christians grow more and more like Jesus Christ. Earlier I mentioned that as followers of Jesus we're transformed. Well, that transformation process is sanctification. In verse 3, Paul is saying that our old selves, they're dead. And our new selves are with Christ. In verse 4, Paul says, Christ, who is your life? The Bible ties our lives directly to Jesus. Because the life of the Christian is this continuous, maturing process of growing more and more like Jesus. Pastor Matt Chandler put it this way. He says, sanctification is the Holy Spirit of God working in you and through your obedience to the pull of the Spirit to transform your life. It means we move toward the things of the Lord. And the greater the Holy Spirit works in your life and the greater that you follow the Spirit's leading in obedience, then the less power that sin has over you. That's why verse 7 says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Notice the past tense. We're not the same people. And sin has less power over us because we're being shaped by God into Christ's image. The Bible says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. We are growing to look like Christ. Ultimately, God's desire for us is to grow more and more like the image of his son. So that's the why. Our, the why is our eternity is secured. Our eternity is in glory with Christ. And God is making us aligned with his son by having a heavenly perspective. That's a lot to digest, I know. 
So now the what? Right? What, what does it look like? What does it look like to have a heavenly perspective? I think it looks like four things. First, it means putting to death all sexual sin. It means putting to death all sexual sin. Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. We'll stop there. Verse 5 makes it very, very clear to the reader what Paul was referring to with that word earthly. He says, put to de death, therefore, what is earthly, colon, and then lists what he thinks is earthly. And he starts with three words. Sexual immorality, impurity, and passion. Sexual immorality, impurity, and passion. And I want to focus most on that first term. Sexual immorality is the broadest of these terms and includes a host of behaviors that God considers offensive, inappropriately, inappropriate, immoral, and sinful. The Greek word used there for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And the best definition I found for sexual immorality defined it this way. It's any type of sexual expression, expression outside the boundaries of biblically defined marriage. Anything outside the, those boundaries of biblically defined marriage relationship is sexual immorality. All of it. It's wrong. It's sin. That includes adultery, premarital sex, incest, polygamy, and so on. Anything outside of a biblically defined marriage is immoral. And the Bible repeatedly condemns sexual immorality and calls for God's people to give it up. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do who do not know God. The verse makes it clear that followers of Jesus ought not give into our base sexual urges like the pagans do. God's people are to seek holiness. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality, flee. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This verse makes it clear that God's payment for our sin, the death of the Lord Jesus, means he has some say in how we ought to use our bodies. Listen. God takes this issue seriously. Seriously. Two words that follow sexual immorality are impurity and passion. That word impurity just means it can be translated as uncleanness. And that term passion uh, in the Old Testament it's, is the word in the most, it means something that, that includes total depravity. So if you spent any time in the Old Testament reading the Mosaic Law, you know how seriously the people took ritual uncleanness. So altogether, these three words are saying that we ought to stay away from any and all unwholesome, unclean sexual behaviors. Now, some of you might be saying, thinking to yourself, all of this sounds just like old-fashioned teachings about sex. I mean, haven't our attitudes about sex progressed as a society? And I'd answer that objection in two ways. First, our attitudes about some things do change over time, but moral laws Moral right and wrong, they don't change. Murder, idolatry, lying, sexual immorality, these moral wrongs have always been wrong to God and they will always be wrong. 
Society's views on morals may change, but whether something displeases or not displeases a holy God, that doesn't change. And the second way I'd respond to that objection is this. Our attitudes about sex actually haven't changed at all. That's why Paul wrote this letter, wrote verse 5 to the church at Colossae. Because they face the same issues we face today. Right? Their culture told them that some behaviors were okay that weren't to God. The culture in Colossae was open to prostitution and incest and other forms of sexual deviancy. deviancy and so Paul needed to correct their worldview. We really like to think that our contemporary views of sex are, are, are progressive and new, when in fact they are the same views and same pagan perspectives on immorality as has been 2,000 years in the making. And the Bible's teaching to the early church then is the same teaching to the church today. It's put those behaviors to death. Put them away. The Bible says this about God's people, but you are chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We are the transformed, sanctified, redeemed people of a holy God. And because of that, we ought to behave that way when it comes to matters of physical desire. By the way, I don't have time to go fully into what a healthy biblical view of sex and sexuality entails. But in 2016, we did a three-week sermon series on what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality. If you weren't here for that, that series or you need a refresher, I'd encourage you to go to our website at www.lc3.com. And you can click on media in the top corner and from there, you can access audio and, vid and video of all of our sermons over the last couple of years. Click on sermon archives and you'll find the three sermon series, the sermons that we did that will provide a fuller picture of what a healthy biblical perspective on sex and sexuality should be. Second, a heavenly perspective means putting to death covetousness. Means putting to death covetousness. Verse 5 says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul uses the term evil desire and covetousness. Now, when, when you read evil desire, when you hear evil desire, it would seem to fit in the previous point about sexual immorality, right? But that's not what that's referring to. That term evil desire is the Greek word epithemia, and it refers more broadly to any intense desire or craving. In the New Testament, it's most commonly translated as lust. And truthfully, you and I lust or desire after many things, not just sex. We, we desire, we lust after the nicer house. We desire the fatter bank account. We see pictures of our friends' recent trip to the Bahamas. We, we covet that vacation. We deeply crave many things. And to be clear, I'm not saying that nice houses and full bank accounts and amazing vacations are ungodly. They're not ungodly. I'm saying that our desire for such things can become ungodly. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way, epithemia is not so much talking about ordinary desire for something that's bad, it's an over, inordinate, or excessive desire for something that's good. That's the essence of what's wrong with us. It actually means addiction in a sense. That's why Paul uses that second word covetousness alongside evil desire. 
Covetousness means greed, right? It's a desire to have more. We desire, we covet what others have that we don't. Or we covet or desire things that we already have, but we want more of. Numerous studies have been published that have found that Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms have exacerbated our covetousness to a degree that we've never seen. Studies have found that the more time people spend on social media, the less happy that they are. And one of the reasons for this is the sense of envy caused by social media. We live in a culture where we document every great thing that's happening in our lives with, with pictures and status updates and celebratory emo emojis. And then we go through our social media feed and we see all of these wonderful things happening in our friends' lives and it makes us covet, it makes us unhappy. This is what covetousness looks like in the 21st century. Listen, the reason that these things are earthly behaviors is this. The root problem of covetousness is envy. The root problem of covetousness is that we're dissatisfied or discontent with what God has provided us. The root problem is that we don't derive our total satisfaction and fulfillment in God. If we derive our satisfaction and fulfillment in something other than God, that's idolatry and it's sin. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Followers of Jesus ought not covet. We put to death sexual sin, covetousness, and third, a heavenly perspective means putting to death our anger. Verse 8 says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath. I don't need to go into the Greek words used here because everyone knows exactly what this means. Anger means anger. Wrath means wrath. In a survey conducted two years ago, nearly 7 out of 10 people said they were somewhat angry or angry with the state of the world. More than half of the people surveyed said they were angrier than, they'd ever, they, were, than, than they had been previously. The National Institute of Health says more than 16 million Americans suffer from a condition called intermittent explosive disorder in which people get angry out of proportion with the circumstance. So apparently, instead of calling it sin, we call it a disease now. <laughs> the Bible has much to say about anger. Jesus declares, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We like to believe that there's a, such a thing as righteous anger, but in general, our anger, it's not righteous. Nor does it lead to righteousness. The Bible says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Fools. If we give in to our anger, we're foolish. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. We will be judged for our anger. We will. The Bible is abundantly clear on this point. Anger is wrong, it's sin, and anger belongs to an earthly perspective and not a heavenly one. We are, put, we are to put to death our anger and wrath. Lastly, a heavenly perspective means putting to death our desire to hurt or mistreat other people, especially with our words. Verses 8 through 9, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. 
These behaviors all have something in common, and that is they involve negatively affecting other people, often with our words. The word used for malice means ill will with a desire to injure others. Ill will with a desire to injure others. Malice speaks to the intent within our heart to hurt someone else. Malice, even in our, even our legal system, uses that word malice, right? Legally, malice is defined as the intent without justification, excuse, or reason to commit a wrongful act that will result in harm to another. The legal de definition for malice is the same as the biblical definition. It means trying and wanting to hurt someone else. Slander is saying something about someone else with the intent to ruin their reputation, right? This word also has a place in our legal system. Legally, slander is defined as the oral communication of false statements that are harmful to a person's reputation. Again, harming someone else. Now, the term obscene talk is a bit more difficult to unpack, particularly because the only time this phrase is used in the New Testament is right here in Colossians 3. And that phrase combines two Greek words, the Greek word for unclean or filthy and the Greek word speech. So most, most translations uh, assume that this means speech that's filled with obscenity, profanity, or vulgarity. And I don't actually think that's right. I think the New American Standard and the contemporary English versions translate it more accurately. The NASB translated it as abusive speech. And the CEV translates it as insulting or cruel things said about others. Given that that obscene talk follows malice and slander, I think that those last two translations are more accurate to what Paul is trying to get at, which is this. Our words, our words can be used to hurt or mistreat others. Amen. Especially when you see the beginning of verse 9, which is this admonition against lying, right? Like anger, you know what the, the Greek word here, lying is lying. It's the intent to deceive people by what we say. The prohibition of, against lying is part of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. It's one of the first things that, that as parents we teach our children. The Bible says this about lying. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. So altogether these four words, like, like malice, slander, obscene talk or abusive speech, and lying. The potential to hurt or mistreat others every time we open our mouths is enormous. No wonder then that the Bible has much to say about the power of our tongue and the potential it has to harm. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Powerful. James says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Our tongues, our speech can be used as weapons. For everyone who has ever been on the receiving end of hurtful words, you know how deeply words can wound. There are dozens upon dozens of verses that talk about the power of our words to hurt others. And when we make the choice to verbally harm others, the intent behind that is malice. The root problem of all of these things is that malice and slander and obscene talk and lying is rooted against the command that we have to love others, right? Our commandment in scripture is to love others, not harm them. The Bible says if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God 
whom he has seen, whom he has not seen. Right? Our love for God is reflected in how we love others. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Christ himself commanded us to love, not hurt. In fact, Jesus went so far as to boil down the whole Mosaic law into just two commandments, right? Love God and love others. As followers of Jesus, we need to put to death the desire that we have to hurt or mistreat others, especially in our words. And instead, in growing Christ-likeness, we need to love them. So I know some of you might be thinking then, because I find myself thinking the very same thing. If followers of Jesus are transformed and sanctified, then how can we still struggle with all these earthly behaviors that Paul just warned us against? Right? Whether you struggle with sexual sin or covetousness or anger or malice, why are our behaviors still so earthly? Why can't we struggle less? Why can't we do this? I'll give you two answers. One, because you and I, we're not yet glorified. Right? While we exist in our current state, there will always be this tension between the earthly and the spiritual. It's why in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul himself confessed the same struggle. Paul wrote, For I do not understand what my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Why Paul struggled with this. We're not glorified. Yet. The second answer to why we can't do this on our own is this. We can't do this on our own. We cannot transform ourselves on our own. We cannot overcome our sin nature on our own. But Paul gives us the solution. The solution is that we can put on our new selves, we can be new creations, because Christ is all and Christ is in all. Verses 10 through 11. Put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Next week, Pastor Caleb will be going through verses 12 through 17. So you'll get to hear from him how to put on the new self. Out with the old and in with the new. So I'm going to wrap up by briefly discussing verse 11 in the context of what we've talked about today. Now verse 11 is often used as a verse discussing unity and diversity, right? I mean, I used this verse as that three weeks ago. And this verse does speak to the fact that in Christ, division can be conquered. But the point that verse 11 is making is really not as much about unity as it's about the fact that in us, change is possible because of the power of Jesus Christ. Paul combines a bunch of terms here that signify the same thing. He uses the term Greek, uncircumcised, barbarian, and Scythian. And all these words together mean an uncivilized pagan. And he's, trying, he's not trying to compare these groups of people to Jews and the circumcised. He's saying like, whether you're in this camp or in this camp, whatever group of people that you belong to, it doesn't matter. Because your behaviors don't have to be defined by your cultures or by the cultural norms. Rather, the power of the gospel, the power of Christ transcends these groups, transcends these earthly perspectives. The sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in us is what will allow us to overcome our struggles with sin. If we think that we can overcome earthly behaviors by being more disciplined or by going through a church program or by reading a lot of books without Christ, we'll fail. 
those are good things. Discipline, church programs, reading books. Those are good things and Christ will use them. But absent the power of the Holy Spirit, they are useless. But, but if we seek instead to grow our love for Christ, if we grow in our desire to be obedient to his calling, if we prioritize Christ in our life, if we make Christ preeminent, then Christ's power in us will grow. The Bible says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, that's the solution. It's giving up our old selves. It's allowing Christ to flourish and live within us. It is living by faith in Christ. It is loving him because he first loved us. The solution is Jesus Christ. Earlier I asked this question, how a beautiful song of faith, like Amazing Grace, could come from the wretched mind and heart of a slave trader. Many of you are already familiar with this story, but the author of Amazing Grace was a man named John Newton. Now, Newton was raised by legalistic Puritans, which contributed to his lack of a real understanding or relationship with God growing up. He was required to serve in the British military, and when he tried to desert, he was forced to work on a slave trading ship, and that became his trade. He worked on slave trading ships for five years. And in 1748, during a journey back to England, the ship that he was on encountered a terrible, brutal storm. And he awoke in the middle of the night and saw the ship filling with water because of a hole in the ship. And so Newton prayed to God for safety. And the Lord answered his prayer, and as the ship tossed and turned, the ship's cargo shifted and covered the hole, allowing the ship to survive the storm. For the remainder of that trip, Newton spent the time reading the Bible. And by the time he reached England, he had given his life over to Jesus Christ. Over the next few years, as his faith took hold of his life, Newton put away all of his former vices. He gave up profanity, drinking, and gambling. And the Lord also convicted him of the great evil of slavery. In his later years, John Newton worked tirelessly alongside William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in Britain. And for a New Year's Day sermon in 1773, after he had become a minister, Newton preached on the necessity of expressing gratefulness to how God works in our lives as undeserving of it as we are. As part of that sermon, he wrote the lyrics to Amazing Grace. You see, that beautiful hymn didn't come from a slave trader. It came from a former slave trader. It didn't come from wretchedness. It came from redeemed wretchedness. It came from a true understanding of the redemptive and transformative grace of God. That's what these verses in Colossians are getting at. It's God's amazing grace. It's Christ in us that gives us both the desire and strength to put away our old selves and become new selves. We don't need to focus on our failures. We need to focus on Jesus. John Newton wrote this. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. You can be what you are because of Christ. Christ is all and in all. So where do we go from here? A few next steps. First, I will seek a heavenly perspective by reading the Bible. The Bible is God's direct revelation of himself to us. Through the Bible, God reveals his character, his attributes, his values, his commandments. If we seek a heavenly perspective, we will only accomplish that goal by reading the Bible. If you never read the Bible, 
commit to just five minutes a week a couple times a day, a couple, couple times a week. If you read the Bible every day, great. Now commit to studying it even further, memorizing it. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of the black ESV Bibles on the tables in the back. Let that be our gift to you. Because we need God's Word. D.L. Moody put it this way, the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. Transform your perspective by reading the Bible. Second, I will put away any sexually immoral behaviors. God created sex to be a wonderful act within the confines of biblical marriage. But sin has corrupted that into immorality. Maybe you're in an adulterous relationship. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction to pornography. Maybe you're in a relationship and you're not married and you've crossed physical boundaries that you shouldn't have. You need to put those behaviors away. You need to put them to death. If you're a man struggling with lust or pornography, our men's ministry goes through material called Pure Desire, which is a curriculum designed to help men overcome sexual addiction. There's also a program called Prodigals that meets on, in, on, in Life Center on Monday nights. If you're interested in getting help, please put your contact info in the communication card, mark it as confidential, and someone from the men's ministry will contact you. If your marriage has been impacted by sexual immorality, please know that Reengage meets every Thursday night at 6.30. Many marriages that have been impacted by sexual immorality have been helped by Reengage. So please allow us to walk alongside your marriage in that struggle. Whatever sinful behaviors you might be engaged in as followers of Jesus, we need to put them to death. We need to flee from them. Third, I will put away any anger issues. As imperfect creatures, we will hurt others and others will hurt us. If your anger has hurt someone, seek reconciliation and ask for their forgiveness. If someone has hurt you and caused you anger and pain, you need to give them forgiveness. Right? Granting forgiveness is one of the great ways that we can deal with anger. If you think that anger is one of the things that you always struggle with, get into an accountability relationship. Have your accountability partner hold you accountable for your anger issues. But we need to work on them and we need to put them away. Mark Twain once noted that anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than on anything which it is poured. Fourth, I will be more careful with my words. We must constantly be aware of how our words either hurt or heal others. We always have this, this choice between wounding or encouraging with our words. If you're married or a parent, how you speak to your spouse or your children, you need to be intentional about that. If you're a young child, how you talk to your siblings or how you talk to your parent, you need to be intentional about that. How we speak to our family, our friends, our co-workers or strangers, what comes out of our mouths reflects what's in our hearts. The Bible says, let no corrupting talk come, uh, come out of our mouths, but only such is as good as building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let your words be encouraging, not corrupting, not wounding. Lastly, if you're not a Christian, the most important next step is for you. I will become a new creation in Jesus Christ. If John Newton's testimony has taught us anything, it is that no one, no one is beyond God's reach, and that everyone can be transformed. It's in God's amazing grace where the wretched are saved, the blind are given sight, and the lost are found. Everyone seeks redemption. Everyone seeks to be better than they are, and maybe you've tried that on your own, but you don't need to give your efforts because Christ has given all the effort that you need on the cross. You don't need to do anything but give your life to Jesus Christ. At the end of his life, John Newton wrote the following to pass along all that he knew to be true. He wrote this, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, 
Christ is a great Savior. He is a great, great Savior. Let him be yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you by save for saving us. Thank you that by your grace alone, in Christ alone, we are new creations. Thank you that no matter the person that we've been, you are a great Savior. And we can be changed by the transformative power of the gospel. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, I pray that they would feel you tugging at their hearts. I pray that they would sense you calling them. Lord, I pray that they, even now, would give themselves over to you by asking you to make them a new creation. Might they seek a relationship with you even now. Lord, renew our thoughts and hearts. Help us to put to death any and all behaviors and attitudes that belong to our dead selves. Sanctify us, Lord, by the power of your spirit. You've already chosen us as your own. You've already set us free. And so we choose in gratitude to live in holy freedom. In the name of Christ our King. Amen.